it's important to research the background of that person by, you know, just Google and see if they've written some articles and see if they've got their voice in the world, if they're an influencer, and then read up a bit on what they've written and what their philosophy is. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you how to grow your wealth without buying yourself a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth job. I'm here today with Matt Faircloth. Matt is a real estate investor. He's the president of the DeRosa Group. He wrote an awesome book, which I've got a copy of here, Raising Private Capital, available from Bigger Pockets Publishing on Amazon, all over the place. Fantastic book. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Woohoo! Thank you so much, Taylor. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. You're, uh, you're uh, definitely a thought leader in the private capital world. And today, you know, we're going to talk a bit about you normally talking to the active investor who's raising money. We're going to be talking to the passive investor who is looking at vetting those passive opportunities and getting into that and how they can get into it. So as people get started, I mean, what are the first you know, three to five things that come to mind vetting passive opportunities? Let's say, you know, for the sake of argument, syndications, vetting syndications. What comes to mind for you? Top three to five things. Yeah, but let's let's back up even further. And when people are thinking about like, you know, what can they get themselves into? Maybe somebody's just, you know, thinking like, well, what else is out there? Maybe I should, you know, invest in this stock versus that stock. And what people are hopefully finding out more of in this country is there's a whole nother world out there with regards to investing. And because of the Jobs Act that uh, President Obama put in place, more and more people are able to get into things that are miles away from Wall Street. Literally, you know, could be thousands of miles away from Wall Street by investing in direct real estate assets, not buying into a REIT. It's a completely different vehicle that they can get into. And real estate offers something that's a very different vehicle with very different returns. And it's not subject to the same you know, puppet strings that Wall Street is. So I love syndications. I also, we've done a lot of private loan deals in that. Those are just two options that people can get themselves into. I know you bring a lot of turnkey providers on the uh, show as well. This was great is that real estate offers at least three vehicles, if not more, because you can also invest in notes. You can also invest in debt. You can invest in tax liens, all kinds of stuff you can invest in that, like I said, are just thousands of miles away from Wall Street that aren't affected by the same forces that affect Wall Street are just different angles are in place. It's a great diversification tool, which is why I'm excited to talk to your audience today. Fantastic. I mean, uh, you, yeah, you mentioned... A lot of things we've had on here. I just got done interviewing George Newberry, one of the a big note investors. So notes are another great option and, and private lending, all that. And, you, and you're right. We really should back it up from just talking specifically about syndications. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little horse blinders here just thinking about syndications because that's what I invest in. But you know, when you're looking at, let's say, deciding between, as a passive investor, syndications, loans, notes, all of them, and narrowing that down, what are some priorities that you know, folks should be looking at? Well, so I do as any good active real estate investor. And, and in, in my book, thank you so much for mentioning it. I talk about a deal provider, which is what you and I do. We provide opportunities to those that want to put their money to work in real estate, but not have to put their time, that not have to go to work in real estate as you and I do in that. So the deal provider provides opportunities to a cash provider. And so when I talk to a new cash provider about working with me in my business, I like to sit down and talk about obviously what their goals are, and more, most importantly, above everything else, you know, their goals are important. All that stuff's important. And so a big factor that determines which direction they should go in investing in real estate is how liquid they need their funds to be and how soon they need them back 
what the source of funds are because somebody investing with a self-directed IRA account, you know, with retirement funds has a different, uh, they might not even be aware of it, but the tax codes treat that differently than they would a cash investment in real estate. So I collect all that data and then I make a recommendation. And so they say, listen, Matt, I'm dealing with some cash, but I need it back in six months to a year because my daughter's going to college or because I need it because I want to buy a house, whatever, but I want to put it to work for a little while. That is a great equation for a private loan because private loans should only be six months to nine months, something like that. Some of mine have gone a little bit longer. Some might have been shorter. And that's, I borrowed money from somebody for like a week one time for a one week transaction. I've also borrowed private money for several years in that. So private loans though, they are perceived to be, and mostly are fairly liquid, meaning it absolutely has to have their money back in a short period of time. You could likely get their money back in, in 90 days is a good time frame because I could refinance the property. I could sell it, whatever, to get that private lender their money back if, if they really truly need it. Whereas a syndication, which is where somebody buys a small chunk of an apartment building or a larger asset like a strip center or a big shopping mall, whatever it is, these are all syndications. The Empire State Building is a syndication, you know, anything in between. That's just buying a small share of something like this, like that, as if they would be buying shares of Microsoft. They're just buying a little taste of it in a bite-sized chunk. In a nutshell, what a syndication is, that is not perceived to be as liquid as a private loan could be. And so that's something to be considered. So I collect all this data and then I recommend like, okay, I think you probably would do better with a syndication for the tax purposes or for your longevity in the deal, where the money's coming from. And so I kind of look at myself as an alternative financial advisor, even though I'm not a financial advisor, I'm an alternative version of such. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, they, they all have a diversity of advantages and relative disadvantages. Let's talk about actually investing in loans, like being a private lender. We haven't discussed that on the show yet with anybody. So you mentioned you've taken out loans from a week to months and you know, could potentially go up to years if the deal calls for it. Right. I don't do too many private loans anymore, but I've been doing this for 14 years. And so I've played, I tend to invest along with the market cycle. And so there was a time where there was new construction and, and you know fix and flips and things like that were getting absorbed really, really quickly. So I got involved in a lot of those and did well with it. And we funded most of those with private, with private money, private loans. And so I've done a lot of it, but I did it in like 2011, 12, 13, 14, in those times. I'm sl- I only have like three flips going on right now and I'm trying to get those done as quickly as possible. So just, you know, get it done, you know, wrap it up. So in circumstances like that, we need money real quick to just buy a property, renovate it and sell it or renovate it and refinance it. The private loan is a great vehicle for the deal provider, and it's a great asset for the cash provider. Most importantly, if they're playing with a self-directed IRA, it is a perfect vehicle for a self-directed IRA. I submit to you it is the best vehicle for a self-directed IRA, and that's because the interest is taxable. So if you invested with cash in a private loan, you'd have to pay, you know, and if it's a short-term private loan, you'd pay just, you know, tax as, as, as interest on it. You have to pay, uh, you know, tax on the interest on the loan, whereas with an IRA, if you invested $100,000 into a private loan and I pay you 10%, it's a six-month loan, so I give you five grand back, so half of that 10% in six months, so half a year, so I give you half a year's worth of interest of 5000 you now have 105000 and you don't have to pay any tax on that five grand you made, so you can then take one hundred and five and invest it into, the next, into another private loan and you can participate in compounding interest, which allows that, you, know, you can double up that money very, very quickly by rolling it over and over and over again in private loans. The savvy investors I've talked to will do, you know, kind of hard money 
with their IRAs, the ones that are willing to be active and growing their IRA accounts. And the IRA can skyrocket in value. One of the issues or concerns or, or opportunities, I suppose, that, that I have with investing in, in, in my IRA, IRA is when I invest in something that cash flows, that's sending me money back. Well, my priority is to have that those funds redeployed. And if it's interest on a $100,000 loan, you know, it's a few thousand bucks. It's not really enough to put in another real estate investment. What have you noticed that a lot of the savviest folks do? Do they maybe put that back in the market somewhere? Do they, what, rather than just having cash sitting? They could, but because I, you know, I, I negotiate interest rates and I try and create a win-win, a win for me as a deal provider when I was doing a lot of these loans was that I didn't have to pay monthly payments. Like, so that's the thing is like, I'll pay you a little more interest if I don't have to pay you monthly payments. So if I wasn't making them a monthly payment, I was paying them money at the end. So when the deal was sold off, like, you know, let's say six months in or whatever, or nine months in, I would, then I would give them all their money back and their interest. And then they were out of the deal completely. Then they had their full principal and their interest back. And then they can reinvest that capital all at once into my next deal or into something else or whatever it may be. Right. If you're making monthly payments, which I've done plenty of times, if you've got a savvy enough investor, they can find a short-term vehicle to park those, you know, to park that thousand a month or whatever it is they're getting into something to generate, you know, four, five, six percent return on it in, in a liquid investment, so that when the principal comes back, they can roll it all up, you know. But that's a lot of work for them to find something like that. So I, I like the no interest during the loan type of thing. Yeah, I would, given that option, I would certainly go for that as the investor. And I'll pay more interest for that. Of course, we all would as a deal provider, but I'll pay, I'll also pay more for it. And so in exchange for being, not having to pay interest during the loan, that enables me to grow my business more and to take on a few more projects and, you know, stretch my resources and get involved in more deals and play an up market, which it was, you know, when I was doing this, that that's what we were doing. It was a win-win at the time. And you mentioned that you're essentially getting out of the flipping business and getting into syndications. Why? Well, we've been doing syndications for years. We've been a multiple trick pony for a couple of years as a company. We've sold plenty of turnkeys, never become like the turnkey company, like, you know, the big guys like Memphis Invest and those guys, I'm sure you probably talked to them as well. But we've never gotten into that level of turnkeying. But we've always liked to have a few different things that we offer as a company. The syndication is really what's taken off in our business over the last, say, four years is when we got into it. Although I've done smaller versions of syndications by just getting a few friends together and doing a deal and then cutting up equity, but we all were active. And that's, I've been doing syndication level projects for the last, say, nine years, but doing SEC registered stuff has been the last four. And that's really just grown exponentially. And so I need to honor that growth and put my energy into it. Additionally, I've used syndications in the right city, in the right asset class, with the right job base, supporting that tenant base, supporting that, those tenants to be recession proof, you know, to, I mean, you know, what's recession proof truly because my crystal ball is broken. So, so at the end of the day, I don't, you know, who knows, right. But I think that the assets we invest in and the cities we invest in are going to do better if we were to have a recession. And so the syndications seem to have done better. And, and I'm not interested in taking on loans in, in today's marketplace, because I'm not sure what property values are going to do in the next six months to a year. So I don't want to be beholden to a bunch of debt going into a potential downturn. Absolutely. And then the, on the, the flipping side, the, as for the active person, the, there's a huge downside to the income being taxable as regular income. Yeah. 
You know what, Taylor? I take a lot of write-offs and, and uh, being a real estate investor with lots of depreciation and stuff, I'm not as worried about the capital gain in that. So I'm willing to do it. So if, it were, if we were still in a confidently rising market, I probably would be doing plenty of fix and flips. I enjoy them. They're fun. You get to create transformation. Like you're creating a home out of a piece of you know what, you know, and I'm creating something that's, you should see some of the before and after pictures of some stuff, that, of some of the work that we did in that. And it's just, it, there's a lot of pride in that. And there's a lot of manifesting the vision that you have in those things. I've just been doing that more on the apartment building level and turning apartments over and turning over common areas and putting in playgrounds and splash parks and stuff like that over flipping houses. So it, it's rewarding. I just am not interested in doing it in today's marketplace. You mentioned apartment building. So it sounds like you're getting into that. Are you looking at other commercial asset classes like self-storage, mobile home parks? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Or is it just apartments? I've been doing this for 14 years. I found that most of my success has come by focusing, even though I've been involved in a lot of different things. Like I said, I've had my hands on a lot of different stuff. The biggest wins that I've had have been in my core. And my core has always been rentals. I got started in rentals in residential rentals. I know residential rentals. I've been a residential landlord for 14 years and I've done a lot of other stuff to play the market and, and that. So I've just, just kind of grown up in it. It's what I know the best. It's what I know the best. So where it's what we're sticking to. I have underwritten deals that, I mean, I had somebody sent me a flex deal, like a flex space deal where it was like a, a warehouse with an office bolted onto it. We looked at one of those deals and it was a phenomenal return. And everything was there. I just couldn't get my head around it. There's another investor out there that specializes in this that is going to blow this out of the park, but it's not going to be me because there's something I'm going to miss. I'm going to not think of something. I'm going to not catch something where it's rare that it's a residential deal that I do that I don't catch most of what needs to get caught. Or if, if something slips in under the radar that I miss, I will easily figure it out because I've been doing this for long enough. So I don't know. I think I'm better to just stay in my lane. So I've looked at a lot of those things. They're intriguing, but I'll likely just invest in their syndication versus me being the operator of it. Because I'll, I'd rather just go in passive in somebody else's deal versus being an active investor or trying to figure out the mobile home space. So, And it's not that it's a bad space. I mean, they're really, really good investment vehicles, but mobile homes and self-storage and commercial strip centers and all those things are, um, I think at this point in my game, it's not a learning curve I want to get on. I'd rather just advance on the curve that I'm on now. Yeah. And those all those things all take specialization and you can mm-hmm. you can partner with people that have that specialization, have built it over time. I would definitely, if it's somebody I trust and like, and I mean, you know, being in your audience's shoes of uh, having to vet out a potential uh, syndicator or somebody offering up an asset. You know, I would just do my due diligence, do my homework on what they've got to offer and then pick the right horse. That's it. Yeah. And what have you found from watching your passive investors? What have you found the most successful ones do in their due diligence process when they're meeting a new sponsor? Because if you're out there and you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars to invest, you have quite a few opportunities out there. It's your job to sort the good from the bad and the good teams from the bad teams. So what have you seen the successful ones do? Well, I mean, you're talking about vetting a syndicator, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you just start with like the basics, right? Like you always got to Google people, you know, because you never know, like you might be investing in a syndicator that's under investigation, you know, or you you might be talking to someone who's because this this is the wild, wild west in the real estate world and everything like that. So you got to be, got to research who it was you're getting yourself into, you're getting in bed with, or you might be investing with someone who was a car salesman a year ago or something like that. So I think that it's important to research 
the background of that person by, you know, just Google and see if they've written some articles and see if they've got their voice in the world, if they're an influencer, and then read up a bit on what they've written and what their philosophy is. You know, the podcasts like yours are a great way to get to know people. So like I said, Google them and see if they've like, you know, been on your show or if they've been on somebody else's show that's in the in the media world and listen to their interview because you'll get inside their head a little bit. Let's hear what they have to say. Then get on the phone with them uh, with data in hand. And, you know, obviously once you hear what they have to say and, and obviously make sure that they do what I suggested, which is listen first and they don't just start vomiting on you about deals that they have and what returns you're going to make and how great real estate is because that's all flash in the pan, you know, used car salesman stuff. Make sure they don't do any of that. Make sure that they get to know you and they're a relationship builder first and beyond everything else. Then the further vetting, ask for a track record. You can ask for references. Those are all good points. I've had investors put themselves on an airplane if they really want to get serious, put themselves on an airplane and go and visit one of my assets. You know, I had one guy that was like, wanted to show me how serious he was. He sent me a freaking selfie in front of a building that we were buying. He was thinking about investing in it and he sent me a selfie in front of it saying like, thought I'd do a little bit of due diligence. And I'm like, I love that about you, you know? And we had a great call after it because he just was that serious that he wanted to see where his money was going to go. So he went down and looked at the asset. I thought that was really, really cool. I commended him for that. Not everybody has resources to do that, but if you can just do as much vetting as you can on the syndicator, but also understand that there is a unknown factor. And I've had many investors get caught in paralysis by analysis that at some point you got to just take the leap. You know, so once you've done your analysis and it's time to make a decision to have the courage to make it, knowing there's still a 5% unknown out there and you're not going to dissolve it, it's still going to be there. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. What might be, you know, once they really get into the property and start working on it, there might be more repair budget might not be high enough or something might happen. You never know what's going to happen. Sure. We fired a property manager in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago and we, and this was a well vetted property manager that ran over 20,000 units in the Southeast strong team and they just could not get her going, man. And so we had to fire them. And so we ran our syndication up the flag with that PM as being, you know, who our partner was on the deal. And we ended up having to fire them and these things happen, you know? And so it's every, everything flows back to me. So yeah, it's my fault. But at the end of the day, it's not something I could have predicted. And so we, you know, jumped on it and fired them and that slowed us down a little bit. So like, again, that's one of those unknowns that you just don't know about. And so we're trying to catch up on occupancy now because we had to fire the PM. So these things do happen and there are curveballs and lefts and rights. You just got to hire a syndicator that knows how to handle the, you know, regular changes that come up in this business. And just somebody's been around long enough that this isn't their first, second, third or fourth deal. And if it's their first, second or third deal, make sure they've got a good mentorship team standing behind them. That's going to tell them what to do if they run into trouble. Mm. And how do you think about for your deals in particular, how do you think about and arrange your team, whether it comes to you yourself who handles asset management, construction management, you know, all, all of those responsibilities. Once you have the property, you know, how does that work delivering the deal for your team? How you arrange that? Well, we have a pretty robust, I mean, like some syndicators are like, okay, I'm going to partner on this deal with Johnny. And on the next deal, I'm going to do a deal with Susie. And on the next deal, I'm going to work with Sally. And they kind of skip around and, and form these one-off partnerships and stuff like that. I see a lot of that in the syndication space of you know syndicators just partnering up and doing a deal or two together and then jumping off into a deal or two with somebody else and everything like that. We've yet, we don't do too much of that. I mean, I've got you know different partners here and there, but at the end of the day, our core team 
is the same every time. And that's my construction manager, my asset manager. I've got an underwriter and a partner that runs the operation side. And that's a repeatable team. And so I think that that one thing that we do differently is that we've got a, you know, we try and have a corporate level feel when we approach a deal. And, you know, there's like a CEO, CFO model and a, um, a org chart that we use for our deals. And even though we're not at like seven or 8,000 units yet, we're treating the company as if we are that big in that. And so we're not looking to do one-off deals. We're just looking to, you know, use the team we have to do those roles that you listed and just use those people over and over and over again. Okay. Now you've been investing in real estate, I think you said earlier, for 14 years? Yes. Since 2005, yes. 2005. Okay. So you got into it just a little bit before the big one. Yeah, I saw a run up and then a run down and then a, you know, geez, what do we do now? And then a run up again, you know? <laughs> and now we're, in many ways, we're above where we were at the peak before, depending on who you ask and where you look and everything. Slightly, yeah. If you look at the charts, we're not too far above. But yeah, I mean, multifamily is. But if you look at the housing prices, we're only a year or two ahead of where we were at the burst of the bubble. But we're standing on more solid ground today than we were back then, I think. We're still propped up on a lot of debt. I mean, our country is still, in, you know, most Americans are in heavy debt and it, we're just a debt ridden country right now and everything like that. So unless you are a doomsday predictor in like an absolute bottom fallout collapse of the whole thing, which if that's going to happen, let's all save up some bottled water and make sure we got canned food in the basement, you know, <laughs> right. And guns. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if that's not going to happen, then, then I think that if you're not a doomsday sayer, then we're just looking at, you know, perhaps like a bit of a slowdown and a bit of a hit the ceiling, you know, maybe bump into the ceiling a few times and then maybe lose 5%. That's more of a conservative prediction of what's going to happen over the next year or two. So not a crash, but a just a slowdown and a correction of, okay, let's all take a breath and let it breathe down a little bit. Maybe that's what happens. Yeah. If you're not in the Peter Schiff style of the sky is falling, everything's going to go bad and the dollar is going to collapse within the next three years. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robert Kiyosaki's talking about that happening for the last 30 years, you know, and everything like that. Maybe he's right. Or maybe that's just what they've been talking about, everything like that and everything. And it makes a lot of sense what they're saying. But I think that that's a very hard thing to prepare for. And so in that sense, I've got to just, like, you know, I hope we make it through. But I would rather just prepare for the more likely scenario, which is we just hit a slowdown in that, which means that lending is going to get less fluid you know, rates will probably do something, go up. You could argue where they're on, they're going to go up or you argue they're going to go down. Stock market will probably take a breather and maybe slow down and maybe some people will lose their jobs. And so maybe occupancies go down in that. So I think everything just kind of, you know, pulls back a little bit. That's what I'm predicting. And so for those reasons, we're invested in more blue collar C-class real estate with job diversity. So the markets we're in, there's no single industry that has any more than 20% control of the market. So if one industry drops, like oil, like let's just say you're in Dallas, and I'm not poo-pooing people that are in Dallas because a lot, I got a lot of friends that are invested in Dallas. But if the oil and gas industry took a hiccup or something like that, that town relies a lot more than 20% on oil and gas, and so does Houston and stuff like that. So those are markets that maybe would take a dip if oil and gas took a slowdown. What we try and invest. By the way, what I just described keeps me away from a lot of the hot, sexy markets that a lot of people are in because most markets have a one to two big drivers that control those markets. So we, we you're not going to see me in the Orlando's, Miami's, Fort Lauderdale, not Fort Lauderdale, Jacksonville, Atlanta. You're not going to see us in those markets. You'll see us in markets that are a little more tertiary. You know, we're trying to get into Pittsburgh. 
So if any of your listeners have deals in Pittsburgh, let me know. So in the last downturn, generally speaking, one of the biggest causes of the market fly real estate market flying downward was this might be debatable, I don't know, but was the lockup in the debt markets. Debt markets froze up and there were big problems. So how do you prepare in your deals for if that happens again? I mean, are you what what are you doing to get ready for that? Yes. So I don't think it's gonna happen because let's talk about why that happened, right? It it happened because the regulations had gotten so loose on what people could get approved for. I mean, geez, man, I was refining properties, you know, stated income, stated assets. If you saw the movie, um, what was it, The Big Short? Yeah, it was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they talk about some of the crazy stuff that was going on back then. I'm not seeing that, but let's just say debt did slow down a bit. Their debt became uh, harder to get. I think that's what you're alluding to. If that were to go down, we've put some parameters in our underwriting. Like I've seen on other syndicators deals, That'll say things like, okay, today's market is a 6% capitalization rate, which we can go into what that means, but a 6% cap rate. They'll project a 6% cap rate on resale five years from now. Maybe things stay the way that they will now, but we typically show like a one and a half to 2% increase of interest rates and capitalization rates on the outsell of our properties. It definitely hurts our projections, but just in case, I underwrite too that when I go to refi my property or when we go to sell, that rates are going to be higher. And that tends to create a bit of an acceptance level for the mortgage world changing. Yes, you're right. Money might get harder to get, but at least my deal is able to receive a rate that's one to 2% higher than what today's rates are. I might have to chase you know, the debt a little harder to get that. And it might require more parameters and lower LTVs and everything like that, but at least my deal qualifies. So as far as um, term and all that stuff of the debt you're getting now, I mean, you doing any interest only loans or how many, what kind of year amortization and balloon terms and all that, what are you doing now to um, prevent that being an issue if it happens? So we do interest only. We do in a lot of our deals, we do interest only because I'd rather pay investors cash flow now versus have them earn amortization points on the property and paying down the principal over time and giving them that money five years from now when the property sells. So I find that an IO loan benefits our investors more in time value money versus having them wait until the property sells. It could be viewed as being more conservative to let that mortgage pay off and everything like that because then you're creating a delta between you know the market price and the debt so that you're kind of opening up that gap a bit. To answer your question, I do interest only for probably the sometimes the first two to three years on a deal. And we'll do... We buy properties on a bridge because we do a lot of big value add properties. I buy C-class properties in you know blue collar workforce housing areas. I do sensible renovations to them to where the blue collar market will is willing to pay a mild premium for it. And sometimes I'll bring it up to where folks that are just, just a smidge above the blue collar market might also be willing to live there for a deal in that. So those are the renos that we do on a bridge loan. And then we refinance with a Fannie and Freddie product or Fannie or Freddie product once the reno's done. What is the best investment you ever made? The best investment I ever made was, so we've done a few deals where we sold, where we've owned a rental property for a long period of time and then sold it. And in those times where we've caught the sale of a rental at the right time has been the best investments we've ever made. My wife and I, we assembled a portfolio of 20 units in New Jersey, where we actually live in Pennsylvania, but where our office is. And we just, we bought two, four families and then slowly assembled more four families going on down the block and then sold them as a package of five of those buildings. We sold it as a 20 unit package 
off to a larger investor, we were able to sell it on cap rate. Like selling a four unit building on cap rate was not you know viable, but selling a 20 unit apartment building on cap rate was. So we're able to trade it at a higher rate because it was viewed differently. And that's, that's probably my best deal. I would say I walked away out of that deal with the largest profit I've ever made, like a sizable six figure check on that sale, which was great. And the biggest thing on that one was we had amortized the debt for a while. I and mean, then we held those properties for like seven or eight years. So big amortization on the debt, had done a lot of the capital improvements over time. It slowly fixed them up and replaced heating units, replaced roofs, and just kept them up in good condition. And so when the buyer came along, he saw these are well-maintained assets. This guy really cares about these things. Solid tenant base, tenants all paying market rents. So I did a good job maintaining rents on the property. And so it was one of those stories where we had really well executed the business plan you know, on a long-term rental deal and that. And I can think of examples of that same story on the sale of some smaller rental deals where we sold like a two-family or we sold a four-family or something like that. And it always seems to play the same way that, you know, the well-cared-for, you know, slow and steady rental is good for cash flow, but also when you go to sell at the right time, it's a great profit on sale too. Nice. You know, you ought to talk to some brokers here in Richmond if you want to learn about trying to sell a quad or a duplex on cap rate. That's what they're trying to do here. But it seems like desperation. Oh, they love doing that. I've seen, and I'm not knocking some of your guests, and specifically because I haven't seen any of your guests do this, but I've seen turnkey providers try and sell a single family home on cap rate. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? That cap rate works until the tenant moves out, right? (laughs) You know, then you're vacant, you know? cap rate really only plays once you get really in, into the larger real estate space. So yeah, no, I absolutely. Last one, I was hunting for a personal residence the last time, just duplex after duplex looking at, it, they're saying, oh, it's a, you know, whatever cap, like, dude, it's a duplex. We don't use cap rate for that. Yeah. No, don't be talking to me about that. Yeah. Just talk to me in dollars per door. Right. Like, let's, let's have that conversation. What's my lender going to think? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Next question. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh man, there's so many. There's so many, Taylor. I'll give you one. I made uh, lemonade out of the lemons eventually, but it's still a bit of an albatross around my neck and it is what it is. And that's an office building that we bought. And we had done some single family deals and some small multi deals and those were starting to do well. And we had generated some returns and we're starting to uh, show a track record. And, And just me being the impatient dude that I am, I wanted to leapfrog it and scale real big and get into a lot bigger asset fast. And so I found this 10,000 square foot building. And at the time, the Corazon administration, which was the governor, he's the governor at the time, his administration was just gobbling up office space left and right. And so I figured that they're, the least they were paying for office space was about a third of what I could buy the building for. Meaning like if I bought it for $3, they were paying a dollar a year in rent. So that is a huge, awesome spread. And they were willing to pay all, all your utilities and all your real estate taxes and all that on top of it. So it was like, I'll take it. So bought this building, leased it short term while I was marketing to the administration, leased to a school, the local Votech high school. They rented it for a year. In that year, the Corazon ministry, Corazon lost the election to Chris Christie, okay, who completely turned New Jersey's upside down. And it needed to have some of the fat cut and stuff like that. So, so anyway, Chris Christie comes in and the market crashes in that time. So I absolutely just absolutely took a gut shot at that time. And so we ended up having to redo the building and do like make it like a small business center and make it like a Regis type of like shared office type of thing. And it eventually came back around. 
and it does okay now, but for a long time, it slowed me down. And I would have done better if I had taken the money I invested into that building, if I had gone out and bought like three apartment buildings or gone out and bought like a couple more small multis and just, <laughs> you know what, God forbid, just keep doing what I'd been doing and just keep buying the properties that I was buying that were working and that were making money. Just buy, how about I just buy more of that? If I had just done more of those kinds of deals, I probably would have been much further along faster. I don't regret it because the building is, is a great asset of mine. I'm very proud of it now, but I think that it slowed me down for a while during those times. So I'd be glad to come on your show another time, Taylor, and we'll spend the whole half hour talking about mistakes I made and talking about worst deals. We'll just do like this thing, just do worst, 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 because that I've got that deal that I've got like 10 more, but we won't do those today. I'll tell you more. I'll, I'll do, do more on the next one. Perfect. Last question. What is the most important lesson you learned in investing? I think that this showed up during that office building is that don't give up. And I think that the only thing that separates those that fail and those that succeed is our people that quit. If you look at, you know, Abraham Lincoln's uh, track record, he like lost a bunch of elections and went bankrupt and had all these problems. And then he got elected president, <laughs> you know, and everything like that. And so I think that Winston Churchill said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, but I think that just not quitting and being hard-headed enough to try again and again and again and again and again and again until you make it work is what I think has been a, a, a success equation for me, but also the way that the folks that I admire are those that have been tenacious and not quitted. Nice. I like that a lot. So I know our, our time is definitely getting short here. I know you've got a lot to do. While we've got you, where can folks get in touch with you? Where can they learn more? You know, you've got a lot of content out there. Where can they get started? You can just simply go to everything's at derosagroup.com, my website, D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P.com, derosagroup.com. They can buy a copy of my book. They can check out my YouTube page. They can check out my wife's podcast, which is out there for investing for women called the Real Estate Invest Her Show. And they can also check out some articles I've written on Bigger Pockets. And if they want to hear more about what we offer as an investment company, they can reach out to us and read up on some things that we've done in the past there also. So it's all at derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P.com. Nice. I like it. Like I said, I have a copy of the book. I have a physical and a digital copy. Tempted to, I don't know, give away my physical copy just so somebody else can enjoy it. But I, I won't do that. I'll... I'll don't do that. I can hold on to it. So one day I can, I want to sign that for you one day when you and I get to meet face to face. Okay, so good. Hang on to that. Good. Okay. I, I will now. I'm obligated. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be sure to have you on again sometime to talk about that rough investment experience and, and all the times it went wrong. Yeah, that'd be fun. It'd be great. A little memory lane, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for tuning in to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I hope y'all are enjoying it. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's an enormous help. If you know someone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, share the show with them, bring them into our tribe, and uh, let's all get wealthy together. For now, this has been Taylor Lode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great day, great rest of your day, great week, and we'll talk to you on the next one. <music>